And please turn your Bibles now to the book of Judges, uh, chapter 18. We've come to the last few chapters of this book, and we've covered the part where we've uh, studied the 12 Judges, and now we're at this final uh, section of the book which shows the difficulties that people are having. Now, children, I have a question for you. How many Judges did we study in this book? How many Judges were there? Yes? Okay, good, 12. And would you say... Uh, as we went through the book, were the judges getting better and more faithful and godly or maybe getting worse as we went through the book? What, what's your opinion on that, Reuben? Yes, that's right. They were getting worse. And so when we get to the end of the book and we see that the people are getting worse also, uh, it's not an accident. This is what God wants us to, to see. This is what happens uh, when we try to do it our own way. And so we started this story in chapter 17 a couple weeks ago. We saw how in one man's family, this man Micah, he decides to make his own idols. He, uh, he hires a guy to be his own priest. So he's going to do it his way. And now in chapter 18, we sort of conclude that story and see how uh, his mistakes spread out and infect more people. And we again see... Uh, this situation where things seem to be getting worse and worse. All right, so we're going to read this whole chapter. This is the Word of God. In those days there was no king in Israel, and in those days the tribe of the Danites was seeking an inheritance for itself to dwell in. For until that day their inheritance among the tribes of Israel had not fallen to them. So the children of Dan sent five men of their family from the territory, men of valor from Zorah and Eshtoah, to spy out the land and search it. They said to them, Go, search the land. So they went to the mountains of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. And while they were there at the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. They turned aside and said to him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What do you have here? He said to them, Thus and, uh, thus and so Micah did for me. He's hired me, and I have become his priest. So they said to, that, to him, Please inquire of God that we may know whether the journey on which we go will prosper, will be prosperous. Sorry. And the priest said to them, Go in peace. The presence of the Lord be with you on your way. So the five men departed and went to Laish. They saw the people who were there, how they dwelt safely in the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and secure. There were no rulers in the land who might put them to shame for anything. They were far from the Sidonians, and they had no ties with anyone. Then the spies came back to their brethren at Zorah and Eshtoal, and their brethren said to them, What is your report? So they said, Arise, let us go up against them, for we've seen the land, and indeed it's very good. Would you do nothing? Do not hesitate to go and enter to possess the land. When you go, you will come to a secure people and a large land, for God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is on the earth. And 600 men of the family of the Danites went from there, from Zorah and Eshtual, armed with weapons of war. Then they went up and encamped in Kirjath-Jerim in Judah. Therefore they call that place Manahe-Dan to this day. And there it is, west of Kirjath-Jerim. And they passed from there to the mountains of Ephraim, and they came to the house of Micah. Then the five men who had gone to spy out the country of Laish answered and said to their brethren, Do you know that there are in this house 
In these houses, an ephod, household idols, a carved image and molded image. Now, therefore, consider what you should do. So they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite man, to the house of Micah, and greeted him. The 600 men armed with their weapons of war, who were of the children of Dan, stood by the entrance of the gate. Then the five men who had gone to spy out the land went up. Entering there, they took the carved image, the ephod, the household idols, and the molded image. The priest stood at the entrance of the gate with the 600 men who were armed with weapons of war. When these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household idols, and the molded image, the priest said to them, What are you doing? And they said to him, Be quiet, put your hand over your mouth, and come with us. Be a father and a priest to us. Is it better for you to be a priest to the household of one man, or that you be a priest to a tribe and a family in Israel? So the priest's heart was glad, and he took the ephod and the household idols and the carved image and took his place among the people. Then they turned and departed, and they put the little ones, the livestock and the goods, in front of them. And when they were a good way from the house of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house gathered together and overtook the children of Dan. And they called out to the children of Dan. So they turned around and said to Micah, What ails you that you have gathered such a company? So he said, You've taken away my gods, which I made, and the priest, and you have gone away. Now what more do I have? How can you say to me, What ails you? And the children of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry men fall upon you and you lose your life and the lives of your household. Then the children of Dan went their way, and when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his house. So they took the things of Micah that Micah had made and the priests who had belonged to him, and they went to Laish, to a people quiet and secure, and they struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. There was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon and they had no ties with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rahab. So they rebuilt the city and dwelt there. And they called the name of the city Dan after the name of Dan, their father, who was born to Israel. However, the name of the city formerly was Laish. Then the children of Dan set up for themselves the carved image. And Jonathan, the son of Gershon, the son of Moses, is what that should read, and his sons were priests to the tribe of Dan until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up for themselves Micah's carved image, which he made, which he made all the time that the house of God was in Shiloh. And there will end the reading of God's word. May God bless us and help us as we seek to understand it together. A number of years ago, a member of our congregation showed up in worship uh, with both of his arms broken. And so the old-timers might remember this. And this is because uh, he had decided to do his own car repairs and had the car up on a lift or on blocks that had failed, and the car fell down. It was really a, a minor miracle that he hadn't been killed and had only broken uh, both of his arms. And uh, today, you know, DIY, do-it-yourself, is a big deal because if you can get on YouTube, you can find instructions for doing just about everything. But DIY doesn't always work. Sometimes it can actually be life-threatening, as this particular man in our congregation found out. And what we have in our text today is an example of DIY religion. First starting with one man, but then, as we see here, spreading to an entire tribe. And what we're, what, we're, what we're being led to understand from reading this is that DIY religion is a disaster. 
It does not work. And, 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 and there are many reasons for that. Uh, but principally, uh, because when we do it our way instead of God's way, we inevitably fall into sin, a sin that is oftentimes contagious and which spreads. And, um, and there's no way out of the morass, it seems to us. And what this passage shows us is that dysfunction. It also hints at what the solution is. And the solution is to turn away from the disaster of do-it-yourself religion and to turn to the, the beauty and the grace of the true religion that is found in Jesus Christ, God's true King and God's true Priest. And as we look at this passage, I think that'll come out. Turn away from DIY religion to the Lord Jesus Christ, the beautiful King and Priest of God. So children, if you want to draw a picture, you might draw a picture of these men from Dan. And what is it that they do? There's a number of things that we're told uh, that the men from Dan do. And listen as we try to understand what God is teaching us through this. Well, the first thing I want you to notice, and there is an outline in the bulletin if you'd like to follow along. The first thing we want to see here is that you face constant temptation to ignore God's word in favor of your own preferences. We see this in verses 1 to 6. Of our text. So the text leaves Micah. That's where we started uh, when we looked at chapter 17. Um, and we transition into this story about the Danites. And it's an interesting transition because uh, you'll remember the last judge, Samson, was from the tribe of Dan. And this is actually right in the area where Samson was operating. And so um, we're told in the text that the Danites were seeking their inheritance. Uh, and that it had not come to them yet in, in verse 1 of our text. Now we might say, well, why, why is that the case? Well, if you go back to the book of Joshua, every single tribe was given the, the dimensions of their land. And I put a cross-reference in your bulletin from Joshua 19, verse 40. You can see this was true for Dan. The seventh lot came out for the tribe of the children of Dan, according to their families. And if you go and read there, it gives you the very specific dimensions of where this land was. And it was supposed to be there along the Mediterranean, near where the Philistines are operating in this time. So when it says that the, the land had not come, their inheritance had not come to them, what it means is they had not done what they needed to do to secure the land and, and to have a place to live. In fact, if you go back to the first chapter of Judges, and I put this in the outline as well, Judges 1.34, it says, The Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountains, for they would not allow them to come down to the valley. And um, if, you, if you remember what we looked at earlier in this book, this is not really about the, the enemy being too strong. This is about God's people lacking the faith to do what they needed to do to take possession of the land that God had given them. And at the end of the day, they're content to live in amongst the pagans. And as one commentator says, the, the tribe of Dan is basically like squatters right now, forced up into the hill country of Ephraim because they haven't taken their land. So this is why uh, they're say, it's saying here that they're looking for a land to find. So um, this is why they need land. And verse 2 tells us then that they appoint five men uh, to go spy out and basically look for land. And so these men end up going way to the north. They actually go outside the borders of the land that God had given them. But they're going again. They're going to do it their way. They're not going to take the land God uh, gave them. They're going to go find their own land. Now it tells us in verse 3 as they travel north, 
that they come to the house of Micah. And uh, so we, Micah's the, the one we were introduced to in, in chapter 17. And while they're there, they hear a young Levite. It says they recognize his voice. I don't think this means that, oh, they knew this guy, but that they hear, they hear a voice that they know is not from around this area. They hear his accent. So they go to find out what he's doing there. And they find out he's a priest. So they find out Micah's got all his homemade gods right there, his own little religious center right there in his house. So they think, well, let's ask this priest whether our trip, our, our exploration will be successful. So in verse 5, please inquire of God that we may know whether the journey on which we will go will be prosperous. And so the priest, this Levite, knows how to win friends and influence people. Uh, so he, he gives them a great report, right? Uh, go and be blessed. Uh, the Lord will bless you. Uh, this will succeed. Uh, so, of course, this isn't a true priest. This isn't a guy that uh, is, is doing anything appropriate, but he gives them a good word. And so there they go uh, off with this confidence. And I think this should be incredibly familiar to us because it's so often the case that we know what God's word says. The, the Danites knew where their inheritance was and we try to... Uh, tweak it a little bit and uh, change it and uh, come up with our own version of what it should say and then we do our own thing uh, but then we want God to bless us doing our own thing so here they are asking the fake priest to bless what they're doing to baptize their own plan which is clearly against what God has said they're going up to an area God said nothing about them taking and so and so they're going to do it their own way. And I think we find this temptation all the time uh, where you know, God says we ought to give substantially to support the work of the church. Well, we, we tweak that and we make, we, make, we make that something else. Well, I, I'm showing up on Sunday. This is how, this is how I support the work of the church. Um, we see this all the time with, with, with young people. The, the God's word is very clear about not being involved in sexual relationships outside of marriage. But we tell ourselves, well, if we really love each other and if it's just this one person, then it's different. And, and, and so we're, we're often able to do this. God says we ought to be in his word, reading his word regularly in our own private devotional life. But we, we tell ourselves something slightly different and we do it our own way. And you have to remember that in this part of the book, we said this last time, the narrator gives very little editorial comment. So he doesn't say, this was really bad, that was really bad. You're supposed to figure that out for yourself when you see all the dysfunction that is happening here. The Danites never use the name of God. They don't call him Yahweh, his, his covenant name. They refer to him as, as God, the, the powerful one. But they, they see God as something that they want to manipulate so that they can get what they want. And you and I need to realize we are often faced with similar temptations to, to create a sort of DIY version of Christianity so that it fits our preferences. Well, secondly, then, the text shows us not to confuse the success of your approach with God's validation of your approach. So... In verses 7 to 9, uh, we see that the spies, they proceed north. And they go way up to this area in the north uh, called Laish. And they found there a people, it says that they're dwelling in safety and in prosperity. And they're far away 
from the other Sidonians. So these people have a good land and they're vulnerable. So they go back and they report to their uh, the rest of their tribe. And so they arm 600 men. So they must not think this is a, a terribly well-defended place because this is not a large group. They, there's many more Danites at this time. So they arm uh, 600 of them and they send them north uh, with this idea that they're going to conquer this people. But then in verses 13 and following, we're told that they pass by Micah's house again as they come through the hill country of Ephraim. And these five spies um, who had who had previously met the Levites say, hey, why don't we turn in here? There's some great stuff in here. There's a priest in here. Uh, there's these idols that are in here. Let's, uh, let's get these things for ourselves. So they do that. It says they just go in and grab them. Verse 18 tells us that the Levite says, hey, what are you doing? And they say, look, why don't you come with us? You know, you're, you're making, you're getting ten pieces of silver and one suit of clothes a year for being Micah's priest. You can come be our priest and we can pay you more than that. And look at verse 20. This Levite, right, he says, uh, his heart was glad and he grabs all the fake religious stuff and he goes with them. So he's a pure mercenary just seeking, uh, to, uh, enrich himself and he's gonna take his idolatrous worship worship on the road and uh, and go with the people of Dan. And so I want you to notice here that all along the way, the Danites interpret their perceived success as God's affirmation, God's validation of what they are doing. All right? the, the, the priest tells them, yeah, go ahead. Then they find these, these uh, people that are vulnerable and they think, ah, this is God's blessing. They come back, they recruit the, uh, the rest of their brothers to go with them to fight. Um, they find a priest. Uh, uh, we can take him for ourselves. And, and all along the way, they see this as God affirming what they are doing. Look, for example, in verse 10, where um, the, the spies report back, when you go, you will come to a secure people on a large land, for God has given it into your hands. Right? That They claim God's... Uh, approval for what they're doing. And God isn't approving of it at all. But again, because it looks like the plan is working, they see, they, they see that, they interpret that as God is blessing us in what we're doing. If you look at verse 9, uh, they even go so far, the spies, is to say, they say, would you do nothing? It's like I say this to some of the women in, in my family. Sometimes they go shopping. They tell me about what a great sale it is. And you say, you say absolutely. If you didn't go to that sale, we would be losing money. Uh, and so this is sort of what they're saying here. Would you do nothing? I mean, this place is, is, um, is not defended. It's beautiful. It's got good, good farmland. Uh, it would be a crime not to do this, that God has given this into your hand. And, of course, none of this is from God. This is all their own idea. Matthew Henry, speaking about this, says many justify themselves in their impiety by their prosperity. You see what that's saying. So uh, I don't really follow God, but look at my bank account, and that proves that I'm 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 a, a good person. And this is what the Danites were doing. Or as Lawson Younger says, success, especially as the world judges this concept, is not necessarily a sign of righteousness or an indication that we must be doing something right or the way God would want things done. In fact, it may be the opposite. It may be the opposite. And it, it, is, it is a great uh, warning to us about how we interpret the providence of God. A few weeks ago, we talked about 
some very famous pastors dressing up as characters from Toy Story uh, in their worship service. I told uh, Carl Truman wrote a, an article about this called Turning Worship into a Clown Show. Uh, we talked about a, ch- a local church where uh, the, the praise band played a secular song uh, by Ed Sheeran and then the pastor exegeted the song uh, for the sermon. And if, if, we, if you said to those people, really, is this what you should be doing in worship, what would the answer be? The answer would be, look at how big our congregation is. Right? We have a lot of people here. That, that is evidence that God is blessing us. And you have to be very careful about uh, embracing that kind of logic. Uh, I got a new promotion and a raise at work. God is pleased with me. Um, this or that thing happened. God is pleased with me. When, when what, what really uh, God is looking for is hearts that love Him through Jesus Christ and that are humbly seeking to serve Him. Because if we use that logic, where is it going to lead us? There's almost uh, 2 billion Muslims in the world. Does that mean that God is pleased with the Muslim religion? There's 17 million Mormons in the world. Does that mean God is pleased with the Mormon church? Of course, we cannot use that uh, formula for deciding what God is pleased with and what God is not pleased with. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's what Jesus is pleased with. Uh, People submitted to him. Now, I feel like I must say at this point, uh, because of our context in the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America, if you are not prospering according to the world standards, that also does not mean necessarily that God is pleased with you or not pleased with you. We have some people in our denomination that seem to act like the, the only way to know that God is pleased with you is to have the smallest possible church that you can have. That's not a necessarily a sign of God's blessing either. And we know that, uh, that having affliction isn't a sign that God's not happy with you either. That God and His providence is at work in our lives in different ways. Uh, but what we want to say here is that God wants people who love and serve Him. And so be very careful about interpreting success as the world defines it as God's approval or validation of what you're doing. Thirdly, we want to see here that DIY religion will ultimately fail you. It, it can do nothing but fail you. So the, the armed Danites uh, anticipate that maybe Micah won't be happy with them taking his priest and his gods. And so uh, it says they turn in verse 21, they depart and they put the little ones and the livestock in front of them. So they're expecting somebody to be coming up behind them. And sure enough, Micah... And his neighbors, when they find out that their little shrine is gone, and uh, they don't like that, so they chase after the Danites. And uh, presumably there are some armed men. And uh, when they do that, the Danites confront them and pretty much just say, all right, what are you going to do about it? And it's pretty clear that uh, Micah's group is not big enough to do anything about it. So Micah turns away and, uh, and he goes back home. Uh, without his gods. As it says uh, at the end there of verse 26, Micah saw that they were too strong for him. He turned and went back to his house. But I want you to see what's happened to Micah, this, this man who has, who's done it himself, his, his do-it-himself religion. At the end of chapter 17, when he, when he got the Levite to be his priest and he had his own homemade gods, he said, now I know God will be good to me since I have a Levite as priest. He wanted God's blessing. 
And he thought he could engineer things so that he could get it, doing it his own way. And now what's he saying? Look what he says in verse 24. He says, You've taken away my gods, which I made, and the priest, and you've gone away. Now what more do I have? Isn't that interesting? He had, he had a god that could be stolen. And then he could say, what do I have now that you took it? I've got nothing. That's the implication. I've got nothing. What more do I have? You've taken away my gods. And this is the problem when we make up our own religion. It can never, ever do for us what we want it to do. And it's always going to leave us empty. Uh, Tim Keller, speaking about this, said, In the end, self-made religion will disappoint. Whatever we make into our God, money, power, relationships, or even a reduced man-made version of the biblical God, will not deliver. I mean, Keller's there allowing. Sometimes we can make a pretty close approximation of the real Christian faith, where we go through some of the outward motions of it. Uh, but, but we just get something wrong, right? We, we emphasize salvation by grace through faith. And then that leads us to this idea that we can just live any way we want to. Or, or we focus on obedience and purity of worship and these kinds of things. And then we don't really love others and forgive others uh, when they sin against us. Or we extend all kinds of grace to ourselves. But then when it comes to other people... We're very harsh and judgmental. And all the time we're going to church while we do this. So you see, there's many ways. Some of them are very subtle. Some of them are very obvious. Where we worship something other than the true God. And when that happens, it can be taken away from you. It's one of the profound things about the book of Job. You know, and we mentioned Job a couple of weeks ago, but... Job is a man who was a righteous man, and yet God took away his possessions, everything he had, uh, took away his family, and took away his health. God took all that away from him, and Job said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So Job had a religion that could not be taken away. Because he had something real in his relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And if you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, then you have something that cannot be taken away from you. Everything else in this world is going to be taken away from you at some point. Everything. There's not one thing that you have right now that you're going to be able to take with you into the next life. And you need a religion that's not one you invented because it's going to go with everything else. You need a relationship with the eternal God through Jesus Christ who will be with you through this life and into the next life. So recognize DIY religion will ultimately fail you. It will fail you. Fourthly, we also need to see here that our bad decisions have a way of snowballing and spreading to others. So this is the problem with DIY religion, and that is that it often doesn't just stay local. It seems to be contagious and to spread around. And, and we can see this in, in this account, because what started with one man and his family, Micah, has now spread to an entire 
tribe. Uh, but it even gets worse because you see then this tribe in verse 27, uh, they go up and they find these people of La- in Laish and they kill them all and they burn the house and um, they burn, the, they burn the, the, uh, the city down and they uh, take it over and they rename it Dan and they settle there. And then so they, com- they commit this brutal uh, murder. This is not based on God's justice. God had given them the land of the Canaanites these people are Sidonians, they're different people, they're not a part of the people that God told them to take out. And so they've done something that they were not supposed to do, so they do this great violence in the name of God. And then, as soon as they do that, verse 30 tells us, they set up this carved image, uh, uh, the, the Levite that they've made the priest, and they start their own religious worship center up in Dan, in the very north uh, part of the tribes of Israel. And so the, the text tells us incredibly that this false religion continues all the way until the time of the captivity. And you see that at the end of verse 30. Um, so that these people were priests to the tribe of Dan until the day of the captivity of the land. Hundreds of years later, when the um, Assyrians come in and conquer that land, there's still idolatrous worship going on there in the north. And, uh, and one of the places this happens, because when the kingdom splits in two, uh, Solomon's kingdom split in two, and Jeroboam becomes the kingdom of the north, one of the things he does is he starts a religious worship center uh, in the north. He doesn't want the people traveling down to Jerusalem. And I put this cross-reference from First Kings in your outline. Therefore the king, that's Jeroboam, asked advice, made two calves of gold, and said to the people, it's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. And he set the one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. This is the, the, the Dan we're talking about here. Now this thing became sin, for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. So this, is this, this starts here where we're reading this, and it just continues throughout their existence, this idolatrous worship. In fact, I think this is the reason why when you get to the book of Revelation at the end of the Bible, there's a scene in there where John describes the church as 144,000 people in white robes, cleansed in white robes. And he says there's 12,000 from the tribe of Judah and there's 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin. And it goes through all of the tribes. But one tribe is not listed in that list. And it's the tribe of Dan. The only place in the Bible where the tribe of Dan is listed is left off the list. You're saying, well, how do you get 12? It, it counts Ephraim and Manasseh, the two children of Joseph, and Joseph is listed in there as well. So the, the writer goes out of his way to leave Dan out of the accounting. And I think that's because Dan is so synonymous with idolatry that even you know, hundreds and hundreds of years later in God's revelation... Dan isn't included. And th- this is the point. This started with one guy in his house making this stuff up. And it spread to a tribe and from that tribe to the whole northern kingdom. And, uh, and, this, is, and this is shocking in terms of its scope. But perhaps what's even the greatest or most shocking thing about this, and the author saves it for the very end, is the identity of the Levite who has become the priest, who's pretending to be the priest. For it tells us there 
um, that his name is Jonathan. He's the son of Gershom, the son of, and, and really in the original, it's Moses. It seems like at some point someone felt that that was so scandalous, they added an extra Hebrew letter above the line to change it to Manasseh. And you could do that by just adding one Hebrew consonant. But in the, uh, the other translations, I'm reading out of the New King James, it has Manasseh, but uh, it's, it's almost certainly Moses. Um, so some descendant of Moses himself is the one leading the way. This, the, the point is this has corrupted everybody and it's spread to everybody. And so Barry Webb commenting on this says, Micah's legacy was an idolatry that infected the whole nation and eventually led to its destruction. And it's so sad because these things can start seemingly small and snowball out of control. Uh, over the years, we, we've had people try our church out who do home church. And uh, usually in these situations, the father of the family really feels like he can't trust anyone else to teach his family. And so uh, these families that do a lot of home church. And so, of course, when they come here, they quickly come to that conclusion as well. Yeah, this isn't good enough for some reason, and you're back to doing home church. But the, but, but the, the costs of that to the family are so incredibly high. This idea that uh, only dad knows and nobody else can be trusted. And so, again, it's based on a premise that sounds right. We're seeking purity. We're seeking good doctrine. But then it actually spins into something that's incredibly destruct- destructive. It's a form of DIY religion. And then that affects the children and that affects the next generation. And uh, we need to realize that, that, especially those of us in families, but all of us as we have an opportunity to influence others. Our view about the priority of church, the importance of scripture, uh, the sanctity of marriage, all of these things have an impact on those who are around us. And, uh, and, and really, one of the things this shows is like once we start down this ro- ro- road of DIY, it just gets worse and worse. The only solution is to stop doing what you're doing and to start obeying the Lord in whatever area this is. That's what God is calling us to do because uh, our sin has a tendency to snowball and spread. Well, finally, we see here the, the call to turn away from the disaster of DIY religion and embrace the grace and beauty of Jesus Christ. So I told you before, these last five chapters are not particularly pleasant, and it's going to get worse. Uh, So just be warned. But although the author doesn't editorialize, doesn't uh, spend a lot of time giving us the solution, he does sneak it in there. And so we see this in verse 1 of our text. In those days there was no king in Israel. Uh, We know the second half of that that's mentioned several times at the end of the book. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's the problem. The problem is there is no king and that everyone's doing his own thing. And what this assumes is that if we had a true, righteous, and faithful king, then that would be the thing that could keep us on track. Now, many commentators think that Judges was put in its final form during the exile uh, when the people of God were away from the land. And you might say, well, why is it? Part of it is because of what we read in in verse 30. It says that this was the situation up until the exile. 
So it suggests that whoever wrote that or put that in as an editor, uh, that they were living it, that they knew about the exile. And so the idea would be, if that's true, that the people are contemplating a a time period when the, the, the monarchy had failed. They had gone off in exile and the monarchy had failed. And yet it's a call for what do you need. You don't need ultimately David or Solomon or Josiah. What you need is the Messiah. You need the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect, true, and righteous King. The other thing they need is hinted at in verse 31 at the very end of the passage. It says, They set up for themselves Micah's carved image, which he made, all the time that the house of God was in Shiloh. So they were doing all this when there was a true tabernacle. That one place where God wanted to be worshipped, where the sacrifices were supposed to be offered. And the Danites and Micah and the Levite and all these people in this story that are worshipping God falsely, they all could have gone to Shiloh and worshipped God at the true tabernacle, but they refused to do it. And the author is telling us that's in fact what we need. That one place where the sacrifices are offered. Which again points us to Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me except, uh, no one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus is that one way. And this is why we read from the passage in Hebrews earlier uh, in the service. Because this is what the passage of Hebrews is telling us. This is the true king and the true priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who comes as a priest in the order of Melchizedek. As I read earlier, this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. And this is the solution that the author is giving us in this text, to turn away from do-it-yourself religion and turn to the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect King and Priest. And why, why is Christ so beautiful? Because the salvation that comes from Christ is not based on anything that you do or that you are or that you will accomplish for Him. It's all based on the perfection of Jesus Christ, what Jesus has done in your place. And it asks us to recognize we have failed. We're the people that do it ourselves all the time. We're the people who send snowballs and infects other people. We're the people who ask God to baptize our sinful plans and then interpret His blessing as somehow meaning that we're doing the right thing. Jesus came serving the Lord in sincerity and truth, never seeking the world's affirmation. And because Jesus was faithful in your place, you can be forgiven. If you come to Him and put your faith in Him, trust in Him, He forgives all sinners. And He then will be your King and your priest and enable you to escape the pitfalls of do-it-yourself religion, which will ultimately fail But Jesus will never fail you. So turn from the disaster of DIY religion. Turn to the beauty of salvation through Jesus Christ. Let's pray and we'll give Him thanks. Heavenly Father, we confess that we see ourselves in this passage. So often are we trying to make up our own rules about what constitutes righteousness or what is pleasing to you 
We want your blessing without actually wanting you. And Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for our tendency to create DIY versions of religion. Lord, how we pray that you would help us to see the absolute futility of that. And that you, Lord, would help us to see the beauty of salvation through Jesus Christ, the true King and the true Priest who came on our behalf, who intercedes with you, who pays for our sins, and who uh, lives forever as our great intercessor. We pray that we would know him. We pray that if there are any among us who do not yet know the Lord Jesus, that you might soften our hearts and open our eyes to see uh, the Savior uh, welcoming us into his arms. We pray, Lord, that you would help us uh, then to turn away from all of our own efforts to uh, create our own rules and that we, Lord, would, uh, would serve you faithfully and joyfully. And we thank you so much for our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our faithful high priest. We pray this all in his name. Amen. And now we'll sing back to the Lord our thanksgiving from Psalm 84, Selection C. Uh, it's a, song, a psalm we all often sing as our... Uh, at the beginning of a worship service, it talks about coming into the Lord's courts and worshiping Him. But uh, the reason I chose this here is because it speaks about how beautiful it is to be in the Lord's presence. Your dwelling places, Lord of hosts, how beautiful they are to me. The Lord's courts are my soul's desire. That We desire to be with Him. And He is our Savior and our Lord. So let's stand and we'll sing about our Savior.